So I believe history is determined by ideas. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which all of Western history is determined by the struggle between Plato and Aristotle, between Plato's ideas and Aristotle's ideas. And a similar struggle was going on in the early 19th century. Um, the, the, the 18th century was an age of enlightenment. It was an age that celebrated two fundamental ideas and the political consequence of those ideas. They celebrated reason. Reason is man's ability to know reality. The following is a conversation with Yaron Brook. Yaron is an entrepreneur, a writer, and an activist. He is, first and foremost, however, a proponent of objectivism, a philosophy developed by the 20th century writer Ayn Rand. Yaron is also the chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute, where he was also the executive director from 2000 to 2017. He has also written several books, including Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality, and In Pursuit of Wealth, The Moral Case for Finance. On top of this, he also has his own podcast, The Yaron Brook Show, which I encourage anyone to listen to. His take on almost any topic is unorthodox and yet deeply compelling. On the podcast, we look at comparisons between fascism and communism, economic policies, and the importance of art in society. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. subject that's uh, always interested me has been comparisons between fascism and communism and specifically why communism isn't nearly as stigmatized as fascism or as as much as right-wing ideologies in general and I then heard you on Lex Friedman's podcast talking with Michael Malice about the um the same topic and yes. Uh, yes. that's when I reached out to you and uh, what was the catalyst for this conversation, I guess? So uh, perhaps it's best to begin with asking, what are the philosophical origins of fascism and communism? Well, fundamentally, they both have origin in the same kind of philosophical tradition. They both come out of uh, kind of, I'd say, German romanticism. They both come out of kind of the string of philosophers, starting with Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, Marx is very Hegelian uh, in his ideas. And ultimately, if you string that out to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, um, you, you know, you, you're getting you're getting kind of the influence on, uh, on Nazism. Fundamentally, both communism and Nazism have the same root in the rejection of the individual the rejection of the individual as the moral agent and as the entity that matters, as, as an end in himself, if you will. The collective becomes all. For the communist, the collective is class, uh, what class you're in. And, and there's a superior collective and inferior collectives. The superior collective is the proletarian. 
and everybody else must adjust to the proletarian. Ultimately, we, we, we need to have a, a dictatorship of the proletarian, which means over everybody else. For the Nazis, the, uh, or for the, for the fascists, the, um, the collective is the state, the nation, the, the ethnic group, right? The, the, for, for Mussolini, it was Italians, the heirs of the Roman Empire, and they were going to assert themselves on the world just like the Romans had. But it, they were unique. They were special. Why? Because they were Italians, because they, they, came from, they came from ancient Rome. They were the same bloodline, supposedly. And, of course, for Hitler, it was the Aryan race. Um, and, uh, and what unifies that collective is, is a racial attribution, not class. Now it becomes, it becomes race. Um, both deny the individual moral agency, moral worth, and they also deny the individual the capacity to know truth. So uh, for communism, truth is ascertained by the proletarian. The proletarian has the truth. With, the, with fascism, truth is ascertained by the nation or by the race. And the individual just, you know, he has the duty to follow this truth that is ascertained. Now, in both cases, since there is no such thing as collective consciousness, there is no such thing as a, a collective truth, there is no, the collective doesn't speak. The collective has to have a representative. It has to have somebody who channels that truth, right, to, and, and communicates it. So they both need Führers, in a sense. The, the communism must have a Lenin and Stalin and, uh, or a Mao or a Pol Pot, right? And uh, fascism must have a Mussolini or a Hitler. They have to have it because otherwise... How do you know what the Aryan race needs, what they want, what they desire, what you should sacrifice for? So, um, so epistemologically, the individual mind is irrelevant. Knowledge comes from revelation. That revelation is attained by the dictator. The dictator then conveys it to you. And your moral responsibility then is to follow and to sacrifice for the sake of the cause of the collective. And that is true for both ideologies. And in that sense, there's very little difference except for who you're sacrificing to. Under communism, to the class, to the proletarian, under fascism, to the nation or to the, or to the uh, race, ethnic group. So in many ways, it follows the same sort of social architecture as uh, religion in that sense. The idea that there's a one all-knowing individual who dictates the, the goals to the majority. Absolutely. Very much so. That is, uh, I always say that Marx, what Marx does is he secularizes religion, right? So he takes all the characteristics of religion and turns them secular. So instead of God, there's the proletarian. Instead of the Pope, there's Stalin or Lenin or, or, or Mao, right? And then uh, instead of you sacrificing for God, there is you sacrificing for the proletarian. And instead of revelations that come to you through a book, there's the revelation that Marx gets or the revelation that Nenin gets or the revelation that Mao gets. And then there's the little red book of Mao that everybody has to read and discover the revelations and act on them. Uh, reason is impotent. Uh, the individual matters none, just like in, uh, you know, certain interpretations, granted they're better interpretations of Christianity, but certainly certain interpretations of Christianity. And then if you want one further link 
to even before Christianity, if you will. This is Plato's Republic, right? This is, uh, this is the idea that we, um, I mean, it, it's not pure Plato, and I don't think Plato would have agreed with Marx on a lot of things, and I don't think he would have agreed with Hitler on a lot of things, but philosophically, this is the idea that we, common people, are basically in a cave, seeing shadows. We don't know reality. We don't know truth. We don't know what's good for us. We rely on the philosopher kings who can actually see the sun, no reality, no truth, no morality, know what we should do to tell us how to live, what professions to have, who to marry, and who to sacrifice to. Uh, so I don't think Plato was as big on sacrifice as Christianity becomes and then as, as communism and fascism are, but it's the same philosophical thread. It's a platonic, you know, the Christians were very Neoplatonist. They were very influenced by Plato. And then I think Marx is very Christian. And I think fascism in the end is just another spin on, it, it takes certain aspects of paganism, but but its dominant feature is a Christian feature. Well, then what are, what would you say then the main differences between the two are, between fascism and communism then, or are they only different in name then? So one of the differences is, and I think that makes communism more palatable and actually uh, more palatable than fascism to many people, is that communism is universal. Communism, um, as long as you're proletarian, no matter where you farm, no matter where you are in the world, you're part of the movement. And, and it, you know, communism was supposed to be a universalist movement. It was supposed to be an international movement. It, you know, this is why the Soviet Union was so interested in expansion and in communist revolutions all over the world, because it was supposed to dominate. In that sense, it's more like Christianity. Christianity is a universal religion. Everybody can be a, a versus Judaism, for example, which is a very um, uh, sectarian religion. It's you, you have to qualify, right? You have to pass a test. Christianity, anybody, you know, you get dunked in water, you, you say a few words and, and you're a Christian. Um, fascism, on the other hand, is very much about segregation. It's about one race. Everybody else is inferior. It's about the elevation of that race above everybody else. Now, even though communism implies, and according to Marx necessitates, the destruction and actually murder of whole races and whole peoples who can't be real proletarian, that's not what people deem as its identifying feature. Its identifying feature is this utopia of equality across all people everywhere in the world. Uh, communism does not strive for equality. Uh, sorry, fascism does not strive for equality. Fascism strives for some to be elevated, and those some have to be Aryans, and they have to be blonde with blue eyes, or they have to be Italians, uh, descendants of Rome. Uh, but clearly, some rule and some are ruled, and that is determined by race. And in a world, particularly in America, where we view racism as the worst abomination, and it is. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna. It, it is. About, Ayn Rand called it the most primitive form of collectivism, and she had a very, very low view of collectivism. Um, that fascism is viewed as, as worse than communism. The other aspect of it is is that Marx and the communists always paint that there's a there's a there's a wonderful paradise at the end of this. At the end. After you break a lot of eggs to make the omelet, as, to, to, as, uh, as Lenin said, there is a paradise in which we all live wonderful, happy lives. 
Uh, and everybody on planet Earth who's part of the proletarian revolution lives this amazing life. Um, they never tell you how you get there and uh, what their life really constitutes, but that's the story. Fascism, yeah, the Aryans live well, but nobody else does. No, everybody else is basically their slave or, or, or inferior to them or, or beholden to them. So it, it, it doesn't have an appeal to anybody else other than them, right? And that's part of what I think separates the two. But with the distinction between uh, the two being one of race, and I mean, I've, I've heard pe- I've had people on my podcast who have made the argument that communism isn't as bad as fascism because fascism had a racial element. But couldn't one argue that communism isn't even loyal to a particular race in the same way that uh, Nazi Germany is loyal to German Nazis? Rather, communism is almost one step worse in that it's against the individual. Period, and it makes it almost a makes it a more flexible type of evil, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And 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 what partially what makes communism so evil is it it survived much longer and it's 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 much more seductive and therefore um, much more likely to assert itself. Fascism is ugly and disappears fairly quickly. Um, but yeah, communism is anti-everybody. Communism is destructive to all human beings. You know, uh, when there was apartheid in South Africa, and apartheid was horrible, it was despicable, it was evil. I visited South Africa during apartheid, and it was just disgusting. But everybody wanted to boycott South Africa because of apartheid, which, you know, maybe made sense. But they didn't want to boycott the Soviet Union, where everybody was a slave, right? In South Africa, everybody who was black was the equivalent of a slave. In the Soviet Union, everybody, unless you were a, 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 a you know high up in the Communist Party, was the equivalent of a slave. Mm. And but people viewed that segregation based on race as as more evil than everybody is bad. So I, you know, I don't like this idea of of, of you know which one's more evil. They're both super evil. Uh, they're both among the most mm. evil regimes in all of human history. They both are responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, communism more, but partially because communism uh, was more global. It had both China and Russia and it lasted longer. So they had more time to kill. Uh, Nazism could have caught up with them if they if they'd survived long enough. So they're all responsible for tens of millions of deaths. They don't apologize for it. They don't care about it. Uh, in my view, communists are just as evil as Nazis. They should be treated just as badly as mm. we treat Nazis. They should be shunned from society. Uh, and and uh, But communism appeals to our moral Christian ethic. It appeals to the idea of sacrifice. It appeals to the idea of the struggling worker and the underclass and the and, and caring about the poor. And uh, one, equality is still deemed a virtue in the West, even though I think equality, equality of outcome, but even opportunity. It's probably the ugliest idea in history. It's 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 in some senses worse than communism. Well, I've always because I, I understand why equality of outcome is unfair, and I've heard that you you're opposed to equality of opportunity as well. But why? I've, I've never actually uh, listened to your explanation of why that is. Why is equality of opportunity unfair? Do you think? Well, equality of opportunity is just an outcome. I mean, what does equality of opportunity mean? Um, you know, the my child and. Um, I don't know. My child and Bill Gates' child should have the same opportunities in life. Give me a break. They're not going to, right? There's no way 
to have for them to have the same opportunities, right? He, he's got a lot more money than I do. Uh, he knows a lot more people than I do. He could buy Harvard. He could buy the entire university and put his. So there is anything where you get to the point where you say, look, there's no way to equate them. The only way to equate them is to cripple Bill Gates' children, right? It's to say, no, no, no. Because they're both Gates' children, they can't go to Harvard. Because they're both Gates' children, they can't do X or Y or Z. If that is your answer, then it can't be right. Let's take a poor, a, you know, yeah, go ahead. So you see equality of opportunity as just a continuation of uh, socialist ideas then? Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a conservative sellout to socialism. Um, because conservatives felt bad because they're not, they weren't for anything. Equality sounded good. They knew equality of outcome was wrong, but they didn't want to give up on the idea of equality. So they, so they said, okay, equality of opportunity. But any, anybody, anybody who really digs into it and thinks about what does that mean? Look, my, I invested a lot of time and effort to work hard and make some money and live in a good place so that my kids would have lots of opportunities. They're not that, you know, some poor kid in a poor neighborhood is not going to have as good an opportunity as my kids. I worked hard to make that possible. Now, that's the reality. The only way you're going to equate our opportunities. Let's say this kid was born. He's got a single mom. His father's not around. My kids had a father. So what are you going to take away that my kid's father so they can have equal opportunities? But, but How are you going to create that? Couldn't, couldn't the goal at least be to raise the baseline for equality of opportunity? So uh, if you take, uh, I mean, the idea There's that we no have- There's no way to do that without sacrificing some people for other people. But, but, couldn't, you, but couldn't you say- can do it. But couldn't taxation then go towards things like uh, making clean water, um, giving public education to children? So you're increasing that baseline for as many people as possible. Yeah, but is it, right? So uh, uh, public education- uh, is public education a good thing? Uh, are we are we really equating opportunities? I mean, clearly, um, somebody can afford to move to a nice neighborhood in uh, near Stanford University in California. It, their public school is going to be a thousand times better than the public schools in what's called East Palo Alto, like five miles away in a in a in a very what used to be at least it's been gentrified since a very poor area of 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 the Bay Area in California. It, it's just mythology, right? It just can't happen. I, I would argue that that because of that, we've emphasized public education and we've rejected the real solution, which is private education. I mean, what you really want is you want competition in education. And when you have competition in education, Poor, poor people actually get much better products. So they get, they don't get quite as good a product maybe as rich kids, but they get almost as good. So for example, um, the automobiles that a poor person buys, relatively poor, in the, in the United States, poor people have cars, right? Relative to the automobile I buy. Yeah, mine's more comfortable. But in terms of getting from point A to point B, theirs is just as good as mine, right? So, but why is that? It's because the cars are not public cars, because there's real competition for cars. Auto, auto manufacturers make cars at different levels. They make cars that are more luxurious, that may be faster, and they make cars that are less luxurious and maybe a little slower. But overall, they do their job because if they didn't do their job, competition would get in and, and beat them at it. Imagine that thinking for education. Imagine we came in with education products and we were competing and, and there were billboards. Hey, in my school, my kids all go to college or my kids get these grades or whatever. And imagine there was real competition and advertising and everything else. You would have offerings 
for poor kids. Maybe the poor kids' schools wouldn't have indoor swimming pools and, and huge fields of football or rugby or whatever, right? But they would have to deliver a good product. Otherwise, competition would arise to kick them out. And they'd have to do it at a price that people could afford because otherwise they'd have no market. So they'd have to adjust the product to the price the parents can pay. But they'd get a far superior product than public education does today. But you see the equality of opportunity thing. Oh, quality of opportunity means the government needs to do it. The government needs to do it. Then it becomes mono. It becomes boring. It becomes mediocre at best. The best schools in America, in my view, public schools are mediocre. We don't even know. I mean, and this is true in Australia. It's true in all over the world. We don't know how good schools could be because we don't have the competition. Imagine schools at the level of Google and Apple at the level of, of what, what are we using here, Zoom. Um, imagine schools that functioned as well as these companies function. Why not? The only reason we don't have that is we've limited competition, we've limited innovation, we've limited the profit motive. So you think capitalistic competition is a better way of closing that, ga- that gap between the poor and the wealthy than uh, social programs are? I mean, I don't think it. It's a fact, right? It's... it's uh, Capitalism is the, is, is the system that has brought more people out of poverty than anything else. Uh, China did not bring people out of poverty by instituting welfare. Uh, China brought people out of poverty by having markets uh, and, and people free to, you know, the first, you know what the first millionaire in China, who the first millionaire in China was? It was a guy who sold on the street, sold, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, sunflower seeds. Sunflower feeds that you, you know, like a snack that he used to fry them and make them delicious and used to eat them. And he, he basically, in a sense, franchised this. He, 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 and Deng Xiaoping, who was the premier at the time, uh, a communist came to him and said, look, this guy is, is expanding all over, the, all over the countryside, all over the cities, and he's a millionaire now. We should shut him down. I mean, we're communists after all, aren't we? And Deng Xiaoping no, said, no, I mean, this is great. He's making money. This is what the new China needs to be about. And, and that's how they came out of poverty, by taking jobs, by industries, by entrepreneurs, by, by working hard. That's how they got out of poverty. And how did, Amer- how did America and Europe and Australia get rich? We didn't get rich through the welfare state. The welfare state came afterwards. Uh, our, our poor, the poorest people in all these countries were relatively rich by the time the welfare state kicked in relative to how they had lived 150 years earlier, right? So the welfare state is a is a creation of um, middle-class, of of rich countries uh, to try to alleviate the guilt of the middle-class. It actually, I think, uh, reduces ambition, reduces social mobility, reduces energy in an economy, it reduces innovation, reduces economic growth, and actually reduces kind of the self-esteem uh, of, of the people receiving the welfare because they don't get to earn it. They're just getting it. Why? Because they're poor. So they deserve something because they're poor. That psychologically does damage to them. So I think the welfare state is incredibly damaging to the psyche of those who receive it. And it's damaging to economic success of the country as a whole. So what is, what is China's current economic setup then post Deng Xiaoping? Are they, I mean, I know, at least a name there, you know, the Communist Chinese Party, but what capitalistic elements do they have? And could you actually, could you speak a bit more to the 
benefits that they've re- reaped in the last 30 or so years because of that? Sure. So in my view, they have, they, you know, they, it, it's kind of a, a system that we've never seen before in many, in many regards, right? So starting in 1978, when Deng Xiaoping took over, there was significant liberalization of the economy in certain parts of China, not all, all over China, but in certain parts of China, primarily the areas around Hong Kong in the south and then around Shanghai and then a number, a number of few other areas in China that were freed up. Those areas boomed because suddenly there were no regulations, no taxes, no central planning, no controls. Basically, they let people do whatever they wanted. And what people wanted was to work. What people wanted was to create. What people wanted was to start businesses and to build. And, and it's stunning. I don't know if you've ever been to China, again, particularly the south of China. It's stunning. You know, places that had almost no population today have cities of 10, 15 million people. Uh, the whole, Gu- uh, uh, I think it's Dongguan province that is, uh, or Guangzhou province that's adjacent to Hong Kong. I mean, I don't know how many people live there, tens of, or maybe hundreds of millions of people who never used to be there. Cities with skyscrapers, uh, industry. When I was there in 2004 for the first time, they made 50% of all the shoes in the world in one city called Dongguan. Um, Guangzhou, Shenzhen became a high-tech uh, center. Guangzhou became a high-tech center. Uh, it, it, it's just, and Shanghai, of course, maybe has the most stunning skyline in the world today, more stunning than New York City, um, more stunning than Hong Kong. So what happened during the early part is they freed it all up and they let people really exercise economic freedom while they kept an authoritarian government. They, so they told people, you can pretend you have private property. We're going to let you pretend that your property is yours. We all know we could take it from you anytime, any place, for any excuse. But we're not going to, because right now we want you to, to believe that you have private property. It's, it's not communism. It's more like fascism. I was just about to say. Than it is seemed- like capitalism. Much more like fascism. Because communism... The state owns the means of production. Under fascism, the state controls the means of production without owning it. But this isn't quite fascism because for a long time, they didn't control the means of production. To this day, they don't control the means of production. You know, I went for the first time in 2004 to Shanghai, and we drove in at night. And the the billboards were bigger than Times Square in New York, bigger than anything you have in Sydney or, or Melbourne. Billboards for Coca-Cola, for McDonald's, for Louis Vuitton bags, right? And immediately it struck me, this isn't communism. I don't know what to name the regime, what to name this, but it's not communism. It's some form of authoritarianism that has managed to separate economic freedom from political freedom. There's zero political freedom, almost zero. Today, close to zero. When I was, I'd say... 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was the beginning of political freedom. I think they've shut it down in recent times. But there are a lot of economic freedom. Now, with Xi in power, this latest guy in power, political freedom is approaching zero. And economic freedom is shrinking a bit. There's still a lot of it, but it's shrinking, right? It used to be much more substantial. So I think China's heading in the wrong direction in that sense. Um, but it is uh, still it's still true that over the last since 1978, really, 
China has brought hundreds of millions of people out of, I mean, the worst kind of poverty you could imagine into middle class status. There's still hundreds of millions of poor people in China, which is a problem for China because they if they stop the great economic growth and they don't allow economic freedom, what happens then? Because economic freedom and, and high growth are linked, right? So if China delinks the two, they've got a problem. Um, but they've got a massive middle class. And that's an amazing achievement. And look, it's an achievement of free markets. So, so look, at, look at South Korea. How did South Korea... Do you know that at the end of the Korean War, South Korea was poorer than North Korea? Today, South Korea is like one of the richest countries in the world on a per capita GDP basis. North Korea is what is the poorest, if not one of the one of the poorest, if not the poorest. How did that happen? South Korea freed up its economy, not as much as I'd like, but it freed up its economy somewhat. Did the welfare state build them out, build, bring them out of poverty? Of course not. Markets brought them out of poverty. And then a welfare state is instituted to make everybody feel better because we live in a, under a moral you know, precept that you have to take care of people. You, know, you can't let people take care of themselves. And you can't do it voluntarily because supposedly we're not responsible enough to do it voluntarily through charity. The state has to do it. And once you start a welfare state, it's, very, it's, it's almost impossible to end one because the special interest groups, the, the pressure groups, uh, that that the get established because of the welfare state are going to fight to preserve it, and they're going to use they're going to use guilt to 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 prevent any 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 shift or any change. Well, I was watching a clip of yours uh, at the University of Exeter where you were talking about sweatshops and their place in global society, and it was one of the more uh, perspective changing or at least perspective challenging videos I think I've ever seen. Could you just give your case for the uh, place of cheap labor within uh, the global society and how you view it um, and uh, the pros and cons of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, I mean, I, I, in a sense, I don't think there are any cons. Um, I think at the end of the day, for a country to go from poverty to middle classhood to, to wealth, it has to go through a phase of sweatshops, of cheap labor, of children working. If you think about poor societies um, before industrialization, children work on the farm. Children have always worked throughout human history. Uh, children uh, worked before the Industrial Revolution. They just worked on the farm or they worked in the, in the shop or, or whatever it was that, that you had going on. Most of the human population were farmers in, uh, in pre-Industrial uh, uh, Revolution times. What the Industrial Revolution allows these children is to uh, remember also, important point, on the farm, they had very little food. On the farm, most children died. That is, over half the children didn't make it to age 10. Now you bring in industrialization. Children can now work in sweatshops. They get paid more than their labor is worth on the farm. They can buy more food for themselves. They learn a skill. They learn an ability. At some point, they rise up the productivity chain. It, when they become adult, they now know how to work. They have a skill. They might be managers. They might go start their own business. Now you've got a whole population in this very poor country that has skills that they can translate into entrepreneurship, into the ability to build businesses. 
the fact is, and there's, there's, a, there's a really good book by an economist by the name Ben Powell, who studies uh, uh, sweatshops. When a country reaches about $11,000 of GDP per capita, child labor disappears. Why? Because children are not particularly productive. They're not particularly good workers. I mean, I don't think I want to manage a bunch of eight-year-olds on a shop floor. And because their parents now, at 11,000, their parents are wealthy enough, still poor, but wealthy enough to take them out of work and send them to school. Now, the parents' wages are high enough to pay for the kids. But, but there's a, no way. But that's but a sacrifice no that has to be made. That, that period, that what our, our equivalent of the sweatshop era, the industrial revolution, that's a sacrifice you're saying that has to be made for us to get to that stage where we can afford to send our children. Uh, Every to- country has made it. I mean, uh, Australia had child labor in the 19th century. As, they, as we transitioned from a farm economy to an industrial economy, children worked. By the, by the early part of the 20th century, child labor was disappearing because Australia had become rich enough so the parents could pull them out. And, and it's not child labor laws that got rid of child labor. It is the wealth of the parents that got rid of child labor. And that's documented in country after country after country after country. It's not a sacrifice if it's the only path to progress. The sacrifice is not doing it. The sacrifice would be letting the kids starve. The sa- you know, so for example, um, there was a, an uproar, I think it was in 2000 or maybe in the ni- 1990s, maybe in the 1990s. There's an uproar about child labor. I think it was in Bangladesh. Uh, children were working in uh, sweatshops in the textile industry. And a bunch of, um, there was a lot of uproar in the United States and a lot of shareholder activists and consumer activists went after the companies that were employing them. And a bunch of companies went to Bangladesh and said to their subcontractors over there, you can't use children. You have to fire all your children. Well, a study was done to look at what happened to those children a year or two afterwards. Where did they go? What did happen to them? They didn't suddenly magically be able to afford to go to school. Many of them now resorted to prostitution. Others resorted, you know, had to go and work farms, which is much harder work and much more, much more uh, uh, debilitating physically. Uh, others uh, worked in a black in a, in what's called the black economy underground, in much worse conditions. So it's not like if you prohibit child children from working, you're saving them because the income they generated was income they needed in order to eat. The reality is, and and you mentioned a debate I did uh, yesterday with a guy named Vosh. And one of the things I said in the debate was I said, the metaphysical fact, the reality is that you either work or die or somebody else works and feeds you. But work is necessary for human beings in order to create the material necessities for our survival. We survive by shaping our environment to meet our needs. That means we have to work. We have to change the environment. We have to do something. So it's the difference. The sweatshop is the difference between a dollar eighty a day for a child and ten cents a day. Yeah, yeah, or zero, or a dollar eighty, but but being a prostitute. Yeah, it's depressing, isn't it? But well, but it do? isn't. 
it's not. It no, right? I understand it's why you're saying that. It's not in the sense that it it's them... half hours. Mm. So I just read that Bangladesh right now, the, the per capita GDP of Bangladesh just surpassed both Pakistan and India. Bangladesh is getting richer. Because and they're it, doing because they've got a sweatshop system and Pakistan and India don't. Because they focused, you know, Pakistan and India probably have also have a sweatshop system, but it's more. Um, but but uh, Bangladesh is uh, emphasized exports and is emphasized and has allowed for much more freedom in its economy, including the existence of sweatshops. Now India has sweatshops as well, even though it has anti. It has anti-child labor laws. Everybody ignores them. They still have sweatshops. But, but they, they're not as open. They're not as open about export-import. They're not as open about economic progress. Bangladesh seems to have a more open economy, a more free market. I won't say it's free market, but more free market than Pakistan and, and India. And therefore, they have now, even though they've got hundreds of millions of people in a tiny country, right, relatively speaking, it's one of the most densely populated countries in the world, yet... They have just managed to surpass both Pakistan and India, and they're heading up that slope. Not they haven't reached middle classhood yet, but they're heading up that slope towards having more wealth. And in five, 10 years, children will not be working in Bangladesh because they'll be wealthy enough. They see a way out. But if you take the poorest country in Africa that does not have any elements of free market, does not have any elements of capitalism, what you have is child exploitation. What you have is children working in mines being whipped, being brutalized, or child soldiers in, in, in part of the Congo, uh, you know, engaged in, in, in horrific acts of violence uh, because they don't know any better and because they're commanded to do so by, by, by thugs and by evil uh, operatives. You, you, there's, and there's no out. I can't say in those countries, in 10 years, there'll be no child labor. In 10 years, they're going to be, you know, things are going to be great. I can't say that. In, 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 at least it looks like in Bangladesh, that's the direction we're heading. And that's exciting. So, yeah, I mean, there are no shortcuts in life. I mean, it's just a reality that you, there's certain things that have to happen. <laughs> I mean, the same is true, by the way, of pollution, right? People complain about China having been very pollution, pollu polluting over the last 30 years. Yes, that's the cost of development. What happens when you're very, very poor and you're trying to establish economic success? You need energy. You need cheap energy. You need the cheapest energy you can get because you can't afford filters and, and carbon scrubs and, and clean air and clean. You can't afford all that. So you just produce and you pollute like crazy. And then at a certain point, you get to the middle class, like, like people in Shanghai and Beijing, and, they, and people go, wait a minute. We don't want to live with the soot in the air and dark skies. And then they start cleaning up because now they're, they're rich enough to clean up. But you can't become rich if you start out clean. If, 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 if I say you cannot produce unless it's clean, they never produce and they stay poor forever. So pollution, sweatshops are a necessary condition of achieving progress. Africa, when it starts improving and parts of Africa already, you're seeing significant improvement in, in, GDP, in GDP per capita. They will pollute and they will have sweatshops. And if we don't allow them that, if we force them to have solar panels and windmills, then they will never get rich. They will stay poor because they can't afford solar panels and windmills.
I mean, we, we rich countries can't afford solar panel or windmills. Suddenly they can't. It's almost the, so like the contradiction of, uh, or the contradicting ideas of uh, people who simultaneously campaign for you know, the rights of people in uh, third world countries and also for the environment is that they don't understand that uh, the, you can't expect uh, a child in Africa to uh, dispose of his uh, rubbish in a, in a way that's good for the environment. It's... Uh, of course, Quite a, it's it's elitist. It's, it's elitist in a, a couple of ways, but yeah, it's very elitist. The whole climate change hysteria ignores the fact that over half the world's population is still relatively poor. It's it's much less poor than it used to be, but it's still relatively poor and needs cheap energy in order to become richer. I, I mean, climate change is popular in countries that can afford to squander gazillions of dollars on all kinds of ridiculous projects that are probably deep nowhere, whereas Africa and big parts of Asia can't afford that. And I would argue even poor people in places like America and Europe and Australia really can't afford it. And so you would argue that the quickest way to get to a world where we can sustainably um, supply energy would be to open markets and uh, in, in countries that don't have it and allow them to lift themselves out of poverty to the point where they can uh, concern themselves with renewable energies. Yes, and I think in the meantime, we in the West need to liberate our economies and deregulate our economies and let the market decide what an appropriate renewable energy is. So for example, if you care about carbon, if carbon is an issue, then there's only one alternative to fossil fuels, only one, and that's nuclear power. And nobody's building nuclear power plants except maybe the Chinese and the French. Is that because of Chernobyl? America, what's that? Is that because of Chernobyl? Ever since then, everyone's just been hesitant Chernobyl, to use it. Chernobyl, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the, the TV series Chernobyl. Uh, actually, yeah, definitely have. One of the best I've ever yeah. seen, I think. Yeah, and Chernobyl is a, is a phenomenon of communism. It's not a phenomenon of nuclear power. Mm. Chernobyl is, uh, it, it was, a, was an old Soviet-style decrepit technology that was bound to fail. And they made every mistake in the book in the process, right? And still, at the end of the day, relatively speaking, not that many people died, right? Um, but in the West, right, we had Three Mile Island in, 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 in uh, New York in 1970s, but nobody died. Um, Japan had um, uh, Fuki, Fukuyama, Fukushima, whatever. Fukushima. Fukushima. But almost nobody died, or few people died, but but it was, it, and, and that was like, you needed a tsunami on top of an earthquake. I mean, it was a major thing. And still, it was managed, right? Now, that also is old technology. Today, you can build small, efficient um, uh, nuclear power plants that actually utilize their own um, uh, nuclear uh, waste, so they have zero waste. Um, you know, Bill Gates is is funding a nuclear power plant. I think in somewhere in the United States, an experimental one that is is uh, uses uh, salt or something like that, uh, and it's it uses uh, waste from other nuclear power plants. To there's so many ideas. There's uh, there's fusion. There's uh, Ethereum. There's all kinds of stuff out there, but you can't build it because the regulators won't let you. And environmentalists, instead of rushing to nuclear power and embracing it and loving it and thinking it's the best thing in the world, which it is, they want you to build stupid, uh, you know, uh, um, solar panels in Germany 
where there's never any sunshine anyway. And uh, so, so, and, and you only get energy during the day. So at night when you need it, there's no energy. Batteries, to produce batteries requires huge amounts of carbon, you know, fuel in order to produce the batteries, to store the energy that the solar panels. I mean, the whole thing is a fiasco and it's a farce. A windmill, whenever I pass by a windmill farm, I find it, you know, hysterical that half the windmills are not spinning, right? And then, of course, in a day where there's no wind, there's no energy. Uh, it, it's just the whole, and these, these monsters, and they're ugly, and they're the exact opposite of what you'd think that environmentalists would want all over nature. And yet, all we need is, is small, efficient, safe nuclear power plants. Nuclear power is the safest power we have. Fewer people have died from nuclear power accidents than any other type of fuel. And yet, nobody advocates for it. Because the environmentalists don't want us to solve the climate change problem. The real radicals, they don't want you to solve the problem. Have you seen, this is related to this, have you seen the, or been following all the lab leak uh, hypothesis stuff? And yeah. the? Do yeah. you see any comparisons between that and Chernobyl in the sense that we've got a communist government whose incompetence has led to uh, a, a scientific I mean- environmental disaster? Yeah, I mean, if it's real, and it probably is, it's hard to tell at this point, but it probably is. And given how apoplectic the Chinese are to, to, to say it's false, it, it suggests their guilt. Um, yeah, it's very much like Chernobyl in a sense of, of uh, but of course, I, I would add that it turns out that in the United States, these leaks happen all the time at labs. Uh, scientists get sick all the time with their mm-hmm. little viruses that they're playing around with. Um, so it just happens that the Chinese version was much more uh, contagious than the ones that have leaked from U.S. labs. But, yeah, I mean, when you play around with these things, you better know what you're doing and you better have the kind of facilities and protection that prevent this from spreading. Uh, and the Chinese obviously didn't. And the comparison's even more consistent if you think that both technologies, nuclear and these kind of function experiments, were ostensibly uh, a benefit to society, and then, but when performed incorrectly, have screwed society. Yeah, but over. notice one thing that's true about Chernobyl in this is is when the government does it, that's when the screw ups happen. And and if you look at all the nuclear power plants that have that have that uh, have had problems, you know, in the United States, new technology, nuclear technology for power, was embraced too early. It was embraced, and the technology wasn't ready. It was embraced because the government subsidized it. The government said, we want nuclear power. So they subsidized a bunch of nuclear power plants being built. They weren't ready for that. If you'd allow the market to actually exist, technology to advance, entrepreneurs to come up with ideas, and businesses to invest capital to build these plants without the government intervening at all, then you would have had better, safer, more effective nuclear power plants than you had. But don't you need some form of regulation? And that's only going to be instigated by government, isn't it? Why do you need some form of regulation? Well, with something like a nuclear power plant, if you've got, uh, you know, a a startup company that's uh, creating a nuclear reactor and they don't really know what they're doing, but it's, you know, surely an accident's going to happen with a a smaller uh, or less experienced company that wants to get into nuclear power. And if you're not regulated by the government, they're probably not going to reach the standards that are required for safety. So, and you think the government knows what the standards are that require for safety? Better than and some startups. And really, I, I, I'm skeptical. Uh, I mean, entrepreneurs and businessmen, remember, the entrepreneur 
might have a crazy idea, but he has to attract capital. Um, the capital, uh, you know, you're probably looking at billions of dollars to build a nuclear power plant, even uh, without regulation. Um, those capitalists are not going to deploy billions of dollars for some uh, crazy, uh, untested, wacky idea that somebody comes up with. They're going to want it tested, vetted. Uh, uh, they're going to want the best scientists involved. They're going to want the best procedures. Also, uh, are they going to want to be liable when uh, when something happens uh, to a nuclear power plant, right? If, if, if there's an accident, do the venture capitalists want to be stuck with the liability of holding all these people? Maybe, or, you know, here's an innovation you could do. You could say um, nuclear power plants, companies who build nuclear power plants have no limited liability, right? So shareholders will be liable for any damages that are caused, not just the company, but shareholders, their private wallet will be liable for any of those. You can come up with market solutions. I, you know, another one I've always thought was insurance companies, right? A, a capitalist won't invest in a nuclear power plant unless the nuclear power plant buys insurance. Now, what's the incentive of the insurance company? Never to have a claim. So what are they going to do? They're going to regulate the hell out of the nuclear power plant. And they're going to hire the best experts in the world. And what's their incentive? Make money. They don't want to lose money. I like that incentive. I love moneyed incentives. I like self-interested incentives because I, I know how they work. What's the incentive of a government bureaucrat to make sure the power plant is safe? Nothing. What if it is? <laughs> well, I've, if happens? he's doing his, if he's doing his job a lot, but yeah. But what's um, his incentive? What no, what is the motivation? There's no financial incentive. I'll give you that. No, and there's no there's mm. no job security incentive. He's not going to lose his job, right? Mm. Government employees don't get fired because they screw up, right? Otherwise, otherwise we'd have very few government employees left if they were fired every time they screwed up. So I trust the insurance guy a thousand times more than I trust the the, the government inspector. I'll give you one other one. The government inspector has an incentive never to approve the plant. Why? What is that incentive? If he never approves the plant, there'll never be an accident. And mm -hmm. nobody will blame him. He's always going to say, it's just not safe enough. So you, so you think so you think that hampers innovation and, oh, absolutely. and capital? Absolutely. Right? absolutely. It, um, it, regulations destroys innovation. It destroys, it destroys progress. It destroys ingenuism, ingenuity, uh, forward thinking, you know, new crazy. I mean, would regulators today allow the Wright brothers to, to get on that contraption of theirs and try to fly it without a helmet and goggles and an insurance policy and, uh, and an environmental study to make sure they're not going to hit any desert rats or something and, and a million other forms that they would have to hit, they would have to vote. Edison. Did Edison wear goggles every time he tried a different filament for his uh, electric bulb? I don't know. I don't think anybody cares. But he could have gone to jail today because he, mm. you know. And imagine the kind of lab that, did he have sprinklers? You know, he was dealing with electricity. He needed sprinklers. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. There's no way under the current regulatory regime would we have had breakthrough innovations that we had. Regulations today dramatically hamper innovation in every single field. I mean, maybe the best example of this is in medicine, right? Uh, medicine, if I want to bring a drug to market, I have to spend billions of dollars to prove to the regulator that it's, that it, that it's safe. 
not safe for this group, safe pretty much for everybody, right? So now the FDA, or I don't know what the equivalent in Australia, what's their incentive? If they approve a drug and then two years later, side effects, new side effects are discovered. Oh, everybody goes after the FDA. They hate them. They get bad press. Maybe a few people get fired. Maybe, probably not, but maybe a few people get fired. If they don't approve the drug and nobody gets the drug ever, does anybody blame the FDA? No, but so you're saying you're against uh, the FDA even as far as regulation goes? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. But then what? (laughs) So you're saying the insurance companies would fill that vacuum that's left behind by the regulators? There's a massive, so if if I've got drug companies over here creating drugs Mm. and I've got doctors over here recommending drugs to patients, doctors need information about whether these drugs are safe. Uh, You know, because they are now liable because they are giving these these patients the drug, right? And and the patient's going to hold them responsible. Insurance companies want to know if they should pay for these drugs for the patient. So now the insurance company and the doctor don't have the time, the resources, the effort to be able to evaluate the drugs. So there's an information asymmetry, they call it in economics. So what would happen? You're a budding entrepreneur. What would you do? I'd create a company that basically says to drug companies, basically says to the insurance companies and the doctors, pay me. I will test the drugs for you. So it's a non-governmental version of the FDA. Yeah, but there'd be competition. There'd be competition and there'd be innovation. And the incentive, there'd be, there'd be an incentive that was far more balanced. It wouldn't be, the incentive wouldn't be to say no. The incentive would be to, to because of competition, would be to be good at what you do mm. and to approve good drugs that help. And maybe, you know, I remember in the United States a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, there was a medication, a pain medication. Um, that people who had really bad cases of arthritis swore by this medication, right? This was the only medication that helped their pain. And this is debilitating pain. And they they loved this medication. They thought it was terrific. It turned out that 10% of the people taking this medication had an increased risk of heart disease. 10%, not die, increased risk of having heart disease. The medication was pulled. So 90% of the people who were fine with this medication and many of whom this was the only medication that reduces pain in their lives were denied a medication because 10% had a heightened risk of heart disease. Now, some of these people would have told you, I am willing to take the risk of a higher risk of heart disease just to get rid of this pain. Why don't they get to make the decision? Why does the FDA get to make a decision? There's a, there's a, there's a yeah. really interesting parallel between that and what's going on in uh, Australia at the moment because we've uh, hedged all our bets on the AstraZeneca vaccine and yeah. now the AstraZeneca vaccine is giving, uh, I don't even know what it is, but it's one in a couple of hundred thousand uh, people a blood, blood clot. Yeah. And I, I just think it would be surely, especially in the context of going into another lockdown, and maybe it's naive of me, maybe not, but I just thought, wouldn't it be good if you just made the AstraZeneca vaccine available, but with the disclaimer that it could cause a blood clot and it's up to people whether they want to take it or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now imagine another scenario. 
The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were basically fully developed and could have gone into production in June of 2020. Imagine if what Pfizer and, uh, and Moderna had said is, and, and the FDA would have said is, look, we tested this on animals. It seems like it's safe. We've done phase one tests on human beings. It looks like it's safe. We don't know yet if it's efficacious. We don't know if it actually stops the virus. We think it does. It's got a high probability it does, but we don't know because we haven't tested it. And we still don't know for sure what the side effects are going to be. Who wants to accept to take the vaccine anyway? Obese 50-year-olds in America would have been saved, I guess. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people across the world would have been saved. Mm. And and you would have had a much more robust clinical trial because Mm. maybe 50,000 would have signed up for the first month. And then people would have got a little bit more comfortable and maybe millions start signing up. And now you're tracking them all and you're getting all the side effects. And then maybe by October, you say to the world, look, side effects look pretty tame. And look, they're not getting COVID. So efficacious, this looks good. Approve it across the board. And if so were, we would if, have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and individuals, we would have left individuals. This goes back to this mm. issue of individualism. Let individuals make decisions about the risk that they are willing to take rather than have the government. And by the way, this is all about COVID, right? Lockdowns. Why are you having lockdowns? Why can't you decide? Let's say you're really afraid of COVID or you have some comorbidities that make you really susceptible to COVID. You could stay home. Why do I have to stay home? I don't give a damn. I was, yeah, I was having this conversation with a good friend of mine and we were saying rather than doing a lockdown, why don't you just give people the choice whether to go out and work or not and you subsidize the people who are at risk. So say anyone over 40, rather than giving handouts just to everyone in general, just give handouts to the people who can choose to stay at home if they want, but give them the choice to go to work or not. Yes, and I would would make it more than that. I would say, look, if you're over 65, stay home and we'll help bring you food to the house and whatever. We'll, We'll invest all this stimulus money into, into providing for you. Um, but everybody else, unless you're, unless you've got some comorbidity, unless you're obese, unless you're something else, go to work, forget about this. And we're not going to give you a dime. Uh, that would have worked much better. Now, you know, you know, if the government was really efficient, it would have done what Taiwan did, which is basically have a massive amount of testing, maybe even take it one step further and have in-home testing, antigen testing at home that, and, and basically say, if you're positive, stay home. If you're negative, go hang out. It doesn't matter if you're negative, then you're negative. You're not going to infect anybody. So why should you care? So let, if we had tested everybody, if we'd allowed people to buy tests, I think they cost one buck a day, one dollar a day, subsidize it, right? Let everybody have a pack of tests. Before you want to go to grocery store, you test yourself. If you're mm-hmm. positive, you stay home and you isolate for a few days. If you're negative, you run out happy without a mask. To the grocery store. It, it's so strange that it, it's so strange that rapid testing wasn't even part of the discussion at all. And again, you know why? And the FDA was very explicit. They didn't trust people to use the test right, and then to abide by the test. That is, if it was if it was positive, they didn't trust people to self isolate, and they wanted the data, and they wanted to be able to force people. Right. So no, it's all about trusting individuals to make decisions for themselves. That's. Half of the struggle we live in in the Western world. 
If we just trusted individuals, then we would be living in a free society. Bringing the conversation back to the comparisons between communism and fascism, do you think that the rise of these two authoritarian ideologies had anything to do with the void that was created by the fall of uh, various European monarchies, specifically in Germany and Russia at the start of the 20th century? Were people, were people looking to, was it in the culture to look to an all-powerful authoritarian leader still? I mean, no, I don't think so, because um, I think what happened, and, and so I believe history is determined by ideas. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which all of Western history is determined by the struggle between Plato and Aristotle, between Plato's ideas and Aristotle's ideas. And a similar struggle was going on in the early 19th century. Um, the, the, the 18th century was an age of enlightenment. It was an age that celebrated two fundamental ideas and the political consequence of those ideas. They celebrated reason. Reason is man's ability to know reality. They rejected faith. They rejected revelation. They embraced reason. And therefore science. This is the age of science, the age of reason, the 18th century. And they embraced individualism. The idea was that individuals were the entity that reasoned. So individuals had the capacity to reason, and therefore individuals were the moral agent. Individuals were the epistemological agent, if you will. They were the deciding agent. And therefore individuals should be able to choose everything, their own profession. Remember before that, you belong to a guild based on who your father, what guild your father belonged to. Uh, you belong to an aristocracy. They believed in doing away with aristocracy, doing away with guilds and people choosing their own profession. They believed in you, you, you know, suddenly you could choose your own spouse. How come? Oh, because you have reason. You have the capacity to think for yourself. You're not dependent on your parents, on your tribe, on your on your leaders. Do, do um, you think we take do do you think we take the originality of the Enlightenment thinkers for granted today? And that we just yeah. think, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've and we mixed it with anti-enlightenment ideas. And then as a consequence of all that comes out the idea that you can elect your own leaders and that the leaders shouldn't rule over you. They should be your servants. Right. And that's the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence of the United States, 1776, is basically the Declaration of the Enlightenment. It's a political statement of the Enlightenment. All individuals are equal, equal, not in outcome, not in opportunity, in rights, in freedoms. And we all as individuals have inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what the Enlightenment is. So that is the momentum coming out of the 18th century. It is then clashes with conservative anti-Enlightenment and radical anti-Enlightenment ideas from Rousseau, who, who hates reason, who is all about the emotion, going back to nature, man being the primitive barbarian that he was uh, in his origin, uh, rejecting civilization, therefore ultimately rejection industrialization, and he's the father of environmentalism and, and everything that goes along with it, right? Going back to nature and abandoning the civilized. And Immanuel Kant, who basically teaches us that reason is detached from reality. It doesn't actually see real reality individualism is bogus because your moral responsibility, your categorical imperative is to serve others. It's to, it's a sacrifice for other people. So these two philosophers who turn out to be the most influential philosophers moving forward now dominate. 
and the, the, the next 250 years, we're living through it right now, is basically a battle between whatever's left of the Enlightenment, our freedoms, the technology industry, some science, and the Kantian slash Rousseau uh, that has given us postmodernism, critical race theory. So you say, do you, do you say postmodernism as a revised version then of these anti-Lockean, anti-Enlightenment ideals? Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Um, so what's it's, the difference? It's, what's the difference? It's in socialism between? hitting. It's socialism hitting a brick wall. Of of they can't actually they they reject science science, which is what Marx tries to base his socialism on. Mm. They reject the objectivity of science. And therefore, they revert to kind of a postmodernism, anything goes, which is, ba- but they embrace, they don't change kind of the, the economic ideas and the idea of, 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 of equality. They make it worse because they're now egalitarians. They believe in turning us into equal. And the same with, same with uh, critical, critical theory. It's about making us all equal, pulling people down and, and, and using equality as a tool Against the able, against success, against uh, against ability, and it doesn't it doesn't just have this sort of suspicion of sort of traditional societal and academic traditions, but it's also I get the sense anyway that it's got this bitter and vengeful undertone to it as it's well. Got, it's, it's it's driven by envy. Mm-hmm. Envy. Ayn Rand defined envy as hatred of the good for being the good, and these people hatred of the good for being the good. And, and that's what it is. They hate success. They hate somebody standing up for themselves. They hate any, you know, the tall poppies in Australia. They hate the tall poppies. Um, so they are, they are truly driven by a Pol Pot in Cambodia is, is, is a real precursor to the modern left, to the modern postmodern, postmodern left. Because Pol Pot really tried to institute egalitarianism in Cambodia, right? So they shot people with glasses because they thought they, they had an education and they were smart. They shot people with ability. They, they killed 40% of their own population in the name of equality, right? And that's what this new left is about without maybe the same brutality, but it's the same ideology driving them. And in that sense, it, they were the continuation of communism and fascism. So communism, fascism, and the new left are anti-enlightenment forces. Now, by the way, the new right, the alt-right, the, the racist right in the US, the, 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 all the different you know, uh, versions of, the, of kind of the far right today in the US are also, these are all, you know, the Christian, the Christian right in the US, these are all anti-enlightenment ideologies, anti-enlightenment movements. And there's a few of us who are fighting for the enlightenment. There are few of us who are still trying to retain enlightenment values. And we're being swarmed by the communists, the fascists, the, the new left, the new right. And, 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 and I think the, 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 the certain forms of Christianity today in America, you know, things like um, Catholic nationalism or, or, or uh, conservative nationalism is huge. Right. And again, that's another form of anti-enlightenment. Enlightenment is not predominantly nationalistic, although uh, it's predominantly individualistic. The nation state is just created in order to protect the individual so he can be free, so he can pursue his happiness. That's not the, that's not the sense in which today's nationalists view it. It seems it's, it's quite depressing when you said that, that there's sort of fewer and fewer people fighting for the Enlightenment. There's certainly a dying breed 
unfortunately. I think people who believe in those ideology in those ideas, but it's even, and I think I've heard Jordan Peterson say this before. It's the the postmodernists almost just sub out the conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie for the conflict between the oppressor and the oppressed. And in that sense, yeah. again, it's it's an even more flexible uh, yes. attack vector because, as we see on the internet every day, anyone can be cancelled like that. Just yes, and it, it, it doesn't really matter if you're black, white, Hispanic. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Uh, what matters is their definition of oppressed versus uh, oppressor. Uh, it's this intersectionality pyramid that they have constructed. Of, of, of different levels of being oppressed and different levels of being an oppressor. You can be anybody and you can, if you have the wrong ideas, you're automatically an oppressor. Um, so it's, uh, it, but yes, it builds on Marxism while rejecting its universality because they're not about universals. They're about categorizing people into these groups and, and rejecting its attempt at science. I think Marx wasn't really a scientist, but but he he presented it as if it was based on reason and science. They reject reason, they reject science, and then they try to they try to build kind of a, a post-Marxist um, uh, theory on top of that. But absolutely, it's about oppressors and oppressed. So so is communism then and these far left-wing ideologies not sufficiently stigmatized because what they're cloaked in the facade of academia, or it's a bit harder to determine when they go too far, where it's much easier to determine when right-wing ideologies go too far as soon as racial superiority becomes a leading no, issue. No, I mean, I mean, communism is whitewashed because people basically agree. I mean, you hear this all the time. You hear it from conservatives. Communism is a noble idea. It's a beautiful idea. It's just not, it doesn't work in practice. That's an evil statement. Communism is a horrific idea. That also it's doesn't work evil in practice. It's an evil idea. That's why it doesn't work in practice. It doesn't work in practice because it's an even ideology. But they have not given up on the morality of, of communism. They still hold on to its collectivism. They still hold on to its victim, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the uh, elevation of the victim. They still hold on to the idea of oppressor oppressed. They still hold on to the sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice is noble. They hold on to all the features, the moral features of communism. They just don't want the politics of communism, but they agree with everything else. And that's why they can't reject them. That's why there are almost no movies that are anti-communist. There are lots and lots and lots of movies that are anti-fascist, good. But the very few movies, I I really enjoyed um, the movie, Mr. Jones, uh, that came out, uh, I think last year or 2019 or 2020. You should find it, It's it's on Netflix in the US at least. But it's excellent, it's, it's, and it's an anti-communist movie, and it's so unusual. And it disappeared very quickly from the screens, right? No buzz. If it had been a movie on, about the Nazis, it, everybody would have raved about it. There would have been, you know, but no, it was critical of Stalin and communism and, and, uh, and uh, the cover-up and the New York Times, which helped cover up the, the, um, what was happening in Ukraine. It's based on a true story. And it's fantastically made, beautifully, beautifully made movie that critics should have been gushing over. And they won't because it attacks communism, because to them, communism is still a noble idea. And um, because they, the idea- until you're willing to say communism is evil, you won't, you won't, well, it, it, it won't it, disappear. It's interesting because saying working for a communal goal 
does sound nice on the surface of it, but there's there's almost no difference between that and slavery. The idea that you don't reap the rewards of your day's labour, which is exactly what communism is, so, it's at the heart of communism, it sounds exactly like slavery to me. Absolutely. But what we need to reject is the idea that there's a collective goal that we should work for. What we need to what we need to fight for is an, a goal for the individuals, uh, a goal that allows, you know, we want a society in which individuals can flourish. I don't care about the politics. I like to say I don't care about the poor. I don't care about the middle class. I don't care about the rich. I care that individuals, no matter them being poor, middle class or rich, have the opportunities, the freedom to flourish. And opportunities come from freedom. Opportunities are not dropped down to us from, by God from like manna from heaven. Opportunities are created in freedom. You need freedom to have opportunities. So uh, when I say I don't want equality of outcome, I don't want equality of opportunity, I want to maximize opportunities. And you maximize opportunities by maximizing freedom, by getting the government out of the way and securing for it its only job which is to protect our rights, which is to protect our freedoms, to protect our ability to pursue our happiness. Just for the listeners, how many people did communism kill in the 20th century? Wow, it's, it's, it's so hard to tell, but it's well in excess of 100 million. So there's a lot of debate. But, you know, Some scholars believe that just Stalin killed close to 100 million. Really? Mao probably killed close to 100 million. So, you know, and then and, and I'm not even counting Vietnam and Pol Pot and all that. Just the, the Soviet Union and China together killed 100 million and probably more. Uh, just in the 1960s, in the, uh, what was it, the Great Leap Forward, um, 40, about 40, 40 million, million people mm. died of starvation. In Ukraine, there's, a, there's, you know, somewhere between 5 to 20, maybe even more million people died of starvation. In Ukraine, right? This is the heart of Europe um, and the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, some of the most fertile land anywhere in the world. Uh, you, this is what Mr. Jones movies movie is about: the discovery of the of the of of what happened in Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it the, the scale of the of the murder, the scale, and and these are not accidental starvations. These are starvations that are basically manufactured by state policy. Well, it's, yeah, it's what Lenin said when he caused the first famine was that it was good because it was going to destroy people's faith, not just in traditions, but in uh, religion as well. I, I always thought the estimate was closer to 100 million. That's It's 100 million. Uh, the 100 million is probably the, 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 the most reliable estimate. The safe estimate. people who think that it could be up to double that. Nobody and, knows. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. And what was Marx like as a person? He was a jerk, as, as far as I can tell. Was he? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, he uh, I can't remember all the stories, but he impregnated his maid and then refused to help her out with the kids, uh, with the kid. He, um, That's not very he communist lived, of him. He never, he never really worked. He lived off of uh, Engels. Uh, Engels basically subsidized all of uh, Marx's work. Engels basically had the money because his parents, his, his family were rich industrialists, so they were capitalists. So uh, that money flowed. I mean, uh, if you read one of the essays that people don't read and should read by Marx, 
you can find it on mox.org. So it's it's quite easily available. Just look Marx Jewish question. It's it's an essay that Marx wrote on the Jewish question, which was a, a major question that intellectuals in um, in Europe were thinking about in the eighteen in the middle of the in the middle of the nineteenth century. It's brutally anti-Semitic. It is he hates Jews, even though he's he genetically is Jewish. Um, I think his father converted or something like that. Um, he hates Jews because they're self-interested, because they're capitalist. He, he accuses Christians of becoming Jewish and therefore corrupting themselves and destroying it. It's, a, it's an unbelievable essay in terms of how vicious it is uh, and how hateful it is towards freedom, towards capitalism, and towards Jews. So, um, yeah, he was a nasty, nasty, nasty human being. Um, and it's, you know, this is the kind of philosophy, this kind of ideas that come from nasty people. Nice people don't produce now Marxism. Marxism is a product of nasty, a nasty human being. It's funny that Engels was um, the beneficiary of capitalists. Oh, yeah. I guess the irony was uh, lost on him a bit. Um, do you think and the situation? And of course, so- Marx moved to, lived in London and moved to London and wrote at the at the at the, at the British Museum, uh, London, the most capitalist of all countries. He believed communism would come in the UK because it was capitalist. I mean, communism was supposed to be an organic growth out of capitalism. Um, it wasn't supposed to happen in Russia, it, which was which was not capitalist. It was supposed to happen in in, in England, and uh, and and so you know the whole theory of communism rests on this necessary progression, which Russia never had, and therefore uh, you know, the whole thing is ridiculous. The whole theory is absurd. Do you think that the situation in East Turkestan or Xinjiang, whichever way you lean, I guess? can be resolved? And what will be the, what do you think will be the fate of the Uyghur Muslims in the next 10 years? Well, sure, it could be resolved. I mean, all China has to do is stop. <laughs> stop oppressing them, uh, give them freedom, uh, give them their rights, um, give them, uh, I don't know if they want, if, if, China, if China could give them autonomy or just integrate them into Chinese society and give them, give them the freedoms that uh, other Chinese have. Just stop the terror campaigns. Stop what the Chinese are doing. Now, maybe they're afraid to stop because the Uyghurs in the past have had uprisings against the Chinese government. And as, as recently as 10, 20 years ago, there, there were a lot of terrorist attacks mm, in from the Muslims uh, to, towards the Chinese. So maybe the Chinese are afraid, but there are better ways to deal with terrorism than what they're doing right now. And, and uh, even the terrorism... Uh, at least some of it arose because of lack of freedom in China. So uh, the solution is freedom. So these disputes can be resolved. Will they be? Probably not. I, I think, unfortunately, uh, the situation is going to continue the way it is for, for a long time because the Chinese won't risk loosening it up, won't risk, you know, uh, things things getting things getting out of their control. Well, that seems to be... The problem, I think, is that China is now in the situation where they they want to save face, so they're not going to they're not going to liberate these people if it uh, looks weak on their part. And it's almost like the paradox of yes. if, if the world had never is- if the world had never held them to account over this, maybe I they wouldn't that- have felt the need to save face. But it's I, th- I think you're right. I think you're right. Do you think the situation in Xinjiang would turn more blatantly violent? Because I mean, I was watching the I was watching the pianist the other night for the first time with um, my housemate. And just everything about that movie 
and everything that happened in Germany in the 1930s seemed eerily similar to what's going on in Xinjiang. You know, it's not like genocides historically don't seem to happen spontaneously. You know, the the dictators get them all into one area, they get them numbered, shave their heads, as they're doing in Xinjiang as well. Sure. Um, do you think it's going to, yeah, turn a bit more genocidal or blatantly genocidal? Or violent. Mm. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, the Chinese have to tread a delicate line because they also are trying to appease the Muslim world. They're trying, uh, they realize that they've got an exposed Eastern Front with a lot of Muslims on the other side. Uh, with Iran potentially one day having nuclear weapons, with Saudi Arabia having to provide oil to China. They want to basically hold a balance between um, oppressing the, the Uyghurs so, they, so they, they're not too aggressive towards the Chinese and the Chinese can control them and they can control the Muslim population, but without seeming completely genocidal so that the Muslim world would actually turn against China, which is what they're trying to prevent. But isn't the, pro- isn't the problem, though, that Almost every Muslim majority country is a signee to the Belt and Road Initiative. And at least from what I've been able to gauge as an outsider, they've all been sort of morally hamstrung and they're not, they're not sort of looking out for their own. Uh, I mean, it could be. It's not like they ever look out for their own. I mean, remember, these are all dictatorships, so I don't think they really care that much. But, I, I, but I think China does worry about treading a fine line. Some of its natural resources requirements uh, center on the Middle East. They don't, you know, they they need a a, a decent, if not a good relationship with the West. I don't think they are quite ready to just be completely genocidal and risk everything that they stand for. And I think overall, they've got things under control in Eastern China. So I think they feel confident that they don't need to resort to out and out genocide in Mm. order to Sustain that control, but I hope I hope I'm right. I hope you're wrong because mm. I'd hate to see genocide, you know, actually happen. And the West won't do anything. So if it happens, it happens. Then nobody's going to stop it. Mm, that's the most depressing part, I think. Uh, changing gears a bit, I've heard you talk on your podcast and uh, various talks that you've done before about the importance of art. Uh, how important and powerful do you think art is in any society? Well, I mean, I, I, I start with the fact that I think art is incredibly powerful for the individual. I, I think that a that a individual who is a um, interested in the world and and interested in ideas and interested in what's going on in the world, I think in a sense art is a requirement. I think art is what keeps you sane. It what keeps you focused. It what keeps you energized in the world in which you live. I think art is essential to a conceptual being, which we are. We we live by using our minds, by using our reason. That means we live with massive complexity. We live in a world that is hard to comprehend how complicated and complex it is. We apply very, very abstract values to this very, very complex world. It's a lot of work. It's really, really hard. Art essentializes our values, concretizes them, and and allows us to respond emotionally quickly and intensely to the values, to the work that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So I think I think art is essential for a healthy individual life. And as a consequence, it's essential for society because it's essential for its individuals. It is essential for the society as a whole. 
and having good art, real art, not the, the, the pseudo art that exists today. Do you think then, so art is almost a way of acting out what we can usually only hypothesize about. And for that reason, truth as a goal in art is so valuable because the more truthful art is, the more truthfully it reflects concepts that we're hypothesizing about. Yeah, I think so. It's not just things we're, it's things we're trying to achieve. It's moral character we're trying to achieve. It's stature we're trying to achieve. I mean, think about, I mean, I love Michelangelo's David, right? The sculpture of Michelangelo's David. What does it represent? It really represents human perfection. It represents human perfection as a material, you know, just a beautiful body. But it also represents human perfection in terms of character. This is a young man standing up to a giant. He's confident, he's proud, but he's very focused. His muscles are all taunt, ready for action. He is the embodiment of kind of, of, of human perfection and, in and, action, in a the, decisive moment and heroism. And the story of, of David is also the embodiment of the intellect overcoming brute strength as well. Yes, yes. And, mm. and, and, and you know, the, 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 the small, young David overcoming Goliath, who is just all muscle. Right. And David is smart. David knows where to hit him with the rock. David knows that he can overcome his weakness by using a weapon, right? a weapon that requires skill versus just brute force. I had uh, just two episodes on my podcast, actually. I had uh, a art history professor come on uh, because I had uh, to talk about Las Meninas by Velazquez and Michelangelo's David specifically. And he, he laughed a bit when I made this point, but you know how uh, a lot is often made of how small David's penis is. I, my interpretation of that has always been he's phys- it's a, it's Michelangelo's way of conveying that physically he's terrified. You know, he's facing this giant who is literally shriveling him up, but that's in contrast to the yep. t- steely determination in his face that contradicts, you know, his, it's the ultimate representation of determination despite fear. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yep. And he's ready for action and is, you know, he's, he's, you know, ready to act. And, um, you know, obviously the penis wouldn't be erect or anything like that when you're going into battle (laughs) and you're, and you're, and you're ready for action and you're, you know, and in this case you're naked. So Mm. yes, I like that. I like that interpretation. I think that's right. So who are some of your artistic heroes in, in any art form? Well, certainly Michelangelo in painting. Uh, sorry, in sculpture and in painting, his, his Sistine Chapel is, is magnificent, but but certainly his sculpture, I, I think Michael, David is the greatest sculpture ever, um, and, and uh, uh, the Pietà is Pietà in the, in the Vatican is just unbelievable. Um, you know, in, in music, I, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Brahms. Uh, I, I love classical music. Um, I mean, Shakespeare is amazing. Um, I don't like his philosophy, right? I, I think his philosophy is terrible. What's Shakespeare's philosophy? It's very modern. What's Shakespeare's philosophy in your in your it's, opinion? It's in a sense, it's it's a form of of cynicism. It's 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 a um, it's an anti heroic philosophy. It's it's the failure of the hero, the 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 the, the flawed. All his heroes are, are pathetic, really. I mean, think about it, a Hamlet. Can't do anything. He can't act. All the evidence is there. He, he has his... everything available to him, and he won't act. You know, I've never. I've, I've always seen Hamlet as the great. 
his I don't see him as a as a failure or pathetic. His his inaction is his strength because that's he should be reacting to in you know vengeful fury to the the murder of his father. But his you know his belief in providence divine, as he calls it, he he believes that that's not his right to do that, and he his his only other option then is you know to be or not to be to kill himself or not to kill himself. I've always seen that as heroic rather. Yeah, than- but then, but then- and he shouldn't die in the end, right? The fact that he dies in it suggests. Whoops, hello, hello. Sorry, I just cut Can out a little bit. That? Then, yep, I'm on the. I think it just cut out for a little minute, for a second there. Okay. Can you hear me okay. now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yep. Can Sorry, go on. Me? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know. I think he's clearly indecisive. He's clearly weak. I mean, I think he's going through the struggles. I mean, this is Shakespeare's genius, right? Shakespeare's magnificent in his psychological depth, uh, but his characters have to be flawed. So he's struggling, a struggle that everybody would struggle with. Mm. Do I act? Do I have enough evidence? Do I know? What should I do if I act? And ultimately, life is about this choice of to be or not to be. But God choose to be already and go and kill the kill your dad's murderer and get it over with. But he doesn't do that. He waits, he lingers, and then he, he gets, not only does the fear you have to die, he has to die for nothing. Nothing mm. is gained by his death. Nothing is progressed. No value is achieved. Nobody's better off because of this. Everything is, it didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Life is, is it what is it? I never know the quotes, but, you know, life's, well, a, uh, life's a stage, right? Life's a play. Mm. Um, so, he, so Shakespeare doesn't take life seriously in a sense in terms of achieving goals, achieving happiness and progression. Think about Othello. Heroic, brilliant, successful, amazing, and yet can be can be turned like that by an evil monster like Yago. Yeah. Just like that, he becomes this jealous monster who will kill his wife mm. without any real proof, just suspicion, never asks and never faces and asks her the question, but is, is ready to do it just like that. Uh, these are weak characters, the only strong characters in Shakespeare. The only characters that have conviction in Shakespeare, they know exactly what they want and go out there and achieve them are the evil characters. But couldn't right? you, it's, uh, it's, Yorgo, it's Yorgo and Othello. But Hamlet's, sorry to bring it back to Hamlet, but he's a yeah. fictional hero of mine, so I'll defend his cause. But couldn't you argue that Hamlet's inaction is based in his Christianity? And you could disagree with Shakespeare on, on that front for sure. sure. But, I mean, he, he goes uh, with the suicide Option. I think the you know the lines. Um, oh, had his had he not fixed his cannon against self slaughter. So that's that's the argument for him not committing suicide. And then the argument for him. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's it's even said in the play. But surely the argument against taking revenge is you know just uh, that's one of the tenets of uh, Christianity to begin with. So wouldn't you say it, it's his inaction? Yeah. I mean. I mean. Yes. I mean. The inaction is consistent with. Shakespeare's philosophy, then action is consistent with Shakespeare's message. And part of that is, is a Christian message. I'm saying his inaction is wrong and evil, mm. right? So that Shakespeare's philosophy is wrong and evil, but he is brilliant. One of the top two, three geniuses of all time at depicting his philosophy in, you know, drama. Right? Nobody does it quite as well as Shakespeare in terms of depicting 
I mean, so Othello might be the greatest play ever written, but it's a nasty, I mean, it's horrible, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's depressing and it's sad and it's everything. It's, you know, so, but, but, you know, also Shakespeare is a man of the 16th century, 17th century. Like 16th, right? yeah. Like 16th century. So he is a man of, of his time. I mean, he, he, there was no real individualism. There was no heroism in the 16th century. Uh, I mean, uh, other than biblical heroism and, and Shakespeare's too secular to, 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 to go for that and too much of a cynic to go for that. He's not a man of the enlightenment. Whereas comparing to Victor Hugo, who's my favorite uh, uh, author in terms of novels, where there's real heroism, right? The values the heroes might be fighting for are not my values, but they are achievable. They're heroes, they're, they're battle for them. They'll mm. die for them. They'll do anything for them. I mean, I admire every one of those characters. They're not, you know, comparing to Dostoevsky, who's much more Christian. We're, we're, we're right. They're, they're obsessed with debating the, the virtues and, you know, the vices and virtues of everything that they do. And uh, and it's it's a constant moral play. And Hugo, they act, they, they're, they're heroic. So I think Hugo is my favorite novelist in that sense. Um and, 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 and one of the greatest artists ever, uh, certainly in, in a field of literature. Um, so those are some of the people I admire. I mean, a lot. I mean, there's, there's, there's dozens of painters who I like, starting in the Renaissance all the way through the, the early 20th century. Um, but I, I despise what's called modern art, most of which I consider non-art. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I sort of... I, uh, that last statement, I agree with you uh, for the most part. Actually, it's um, it's almost the field of uh, universities that's sort of most emitted in the criticisms of postmodernism and left wing ideologies is the state of art schools at the moment. And um, yeah, it's sort of art oh, schools. But, it, but it art, like art that. it's are, been like that for hundreds. Mm, but art schools are kind of like the mecca for uh, subjective realities. You know what I mean? It's almost like a premise of it. So it's a perfect Absolutely. breeding ground for. Um, but it's been like that for a hundred years. You know, this is not new. Yeah. Like this before even huh. postmodernism became a thing. Right. Kandinsky um, w- w- was splashing paint on a canvas well, well before postmodernism. Oh, right. About yes. the same time but, as postmodernism. But wouldn't Kandinsky have still been operating within a uh, cultural structure, which was just a previous iteration of what postmodernism is today? Yes, I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Least um, subjectivism, rejection of reality, rejection of of of, objecti- of objective reality. What are your favorite passages from Shakespeare? Your personal, the ones that speak to you the most. Wow. I mean, again, I think some of the scenes in Othello, um, uh, where Yago gets Othello down on his knees and and swear that he will go after Desdemona, you know, that, that's just so, particularly if it's staged well or in the opera, in Verdi's opera, God is that dramatic. It just rips your heart up because you know the tragedy that's coming. It's so effective. It's so dramatic. I think Henry V's speech to his soldiers, I mean, that's just a great motivational speech. Mm. Even if you're not enthusiastic about warfare, it's just, you know, he, he hits, I mean, he hits all the patriotic, you know, push buttons that exists, you know, um, obviously Othello's soliloquy to be or not to be is incredible. Uh, Hamlet's, Hamlet's soliloquy. Sorry. Yeah. Ham- sorry. Hamlet's soliloquy mm. is amazing. Mm. And then, um, and then, um, 
I actually have a, a soft spot for for the Merchant of Venice because I, you know, I I, I love uh, you know I think the Merchant of Venice is incredibly insightful. Again, really bad, but incredibly insightful into the dynamics around money lending, into the in the dynamics around Jews uh, at the time and and uh, the the conflict between a Christian view of money lending. You should lend money with no interest. Mm. Because interest is greedy, it's selfish, it, it's wrong. User is and evil. And the Jew, mm. you know, it's my money. You know, if, if we're going to lend it, I, I demand interest. So a capitalist mentality. I mean, I mean, Shylock, in his better moments, represents a capitalist. In his worst moments, represents evil. But I think that connection between capitalism and evil, Shakespeare is predicting it. Shakespeare is building towards it. He is. So we still have this image of the guy charging interest but who really wants a pound of your flesh. He wants you dead. He wants everything from you. Mm-hmm. Um, that image is being a very, seeing it 400 years, 300, 400 years before it was relevant. But and it's, it's stunning, his uh, insight. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because the point I was going to make is that um, the passages, when I talk to people about their favorite passages from Shakespeare, the passages that always appeal to them seem to be indicative of the psychology of that that person, which isn't surprising, I guess. But, I mean, I was a few, because my favourite passages have always been Hamlet's inky cloak speech to his mother, Prospero's abjuration of his magic in The Tempest, and then Macbeth's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. And I was wondering, like, why do these stick out to me so much? And it's getting a bit personal, I guess, but Hamlet's inky cloak speech to his, uh, to Gertrude, really sort of articulated the kind of dignified rage that I think a child in a divorced family feels. And it, mm-hmm. it just sort of hit me. It's like, that's why it's always been so interesting. Uh, yeah. And, but, it, but it's interesting how then Hamlet's monologue or Hamlet's speech in, in that scene almost is a psychological guide for anyone in that position. And sort of to what we were saying, it acts out what you can usually only hypothesize about it's, Yep. Shakespeare does it for you. I think Harold Bloom called Shakespeare the scripture for academics, which I've always thought was such a such a good description. And it, and it just points to what we what we started this section with the power of art, the fact that it can literally guide you through life in that sense. No, absolutely. And I, I think I mean I love drama, and I, I, I guess I I pursue drama in my own life. And battling evil is a big part of what I consider my role in life. And I think those scenes that represent that, I also think this choice between good and evil, life or death, is the central choice between good and evil. It's captured so effectively in to be or not to be speech, to act or not to act, to live Mm -hmm. or not to live. That is what that speech captures. To me, that's the essential choice every human being has to make. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you default in that choice, and I think ultimately... Hamlet defaults in that choice. You default on life. You default on living. You waste your life. And uh, but it's 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 the it's almost like the speech everybody should say to themselves in trying to figure out where they stand. Where are you? Pro life or anti life? You're gonna act or you're gonna be passive. To act or not to act is to live or not to live. And that's that's also you could almost tie that into. I was uh, reading a book about how these totalitarian ideologies always try to cut away the middle straight away. And it's the people who sort of sit on the fence that are, you know, to not act is 
a bad thing. You can't just let the battle, you can't say, I'm not going to get involved in this and let the battle between the far left and the far right play out. The middle has to speak e- up. and has evil, to- evil wins when the good is silent. Mm. That is the reality, always. I mean, the Nazis never had a majority in Germany. The communists never had a majority in the USSR. How, how much more do we have? Uh, uh, not much longer. I was just going to ask one more question. Do you think the... Okay. Do you think the rise of postmodernism and the postmodernist suspicion of reason has hampered our ability to perceive what good art is? Because it seems to me that the the insistence yep. on infinite subjective realities makes it impossible to have a barometer on what good art is and what bad art is. Yes, and I think the fact that um, museums are filled with garbage, are filled with stuff that is not objective, that's not art, that 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 is it's just stupid. Um, is uh, makes it impossible for the common person to have any kind of appreciation for what real art is. You know, the bankruptcy of the intellectuals is is made obvious through the art, right? So yeah, you can give a speech and it sounds highfalutin, it sounds interesting, and nobody knows. But when you go into uh, a modern art museum, the bankruptcy is right there on the wall. You know, I remember, you know, you go into a, a, a room and there's white on white or a framed urinal. That's bankrupt. And that, that suggests to me that the entire intellectual project today of the postmodernists, the leftists more broadly, but also of the right, because the right can't object. The right has no left with. So it's the bankruptcy of the entire intellectual establishment. They're all corrupted. Because you, you, I find so many people who might agree with me in capitalism, but then love modern you know this modern crap mm. and they don't get it they don't get the kind of cultural changes we have to make in order to bring about freedom or or or, or you know a, a real proper integrated uh free culture and it seems again like a the art world's become quite elitist in the sense that only certain people under or understand or think they understand why, you know, Duchamp's urinal is um, artistic and then the rest of us are sort of left to feel sort of intimidated by the intellect of yeah, these people who are telling us that it's very good. But that's Plato all over again, right? In what sense? That's the cave. That's ah, the right. metaphor of the cave. Hmm. Shadows in the cave. You don't know what real art is. You don't know what good art is. It's the philosopher king who has to explain it to you because he sees the truth. He has gotten the revelation of what this really represents. So all they're doing is playing out Plato. And, mm. and again, all of, all of this, the Enlightenment is Aristotle. All the anti-Enlightenment forces are Plato. And I'm on Aristotle's side. Mm, I think I am too. Uh, well, on that, I reckon we can wrap it up. But thanks so much for giving me your time you're on. And uh, as I said, pleasure. it's been a great uh, conversation for changing and challenging some of my perspectives and um yeah really appreciate your time so thank absolutely you. well let me know let me know when it goes live and uh, i'll link to it and uh, send us the video yep will do